Should you feel the love tonight? Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode 75. In today's episode, you probably already noticed there's something really weird at the front of this episode. Uh, we all sang like a variation of a Lord, uh, not Lord of the Rings, <laughs> of a Lion King song. And uh, that's because we're going to talk about some of those things in the main content. Uh, Tim is going to talk about the adjuration refrain in the Song of Solomon. Uh, but before we do that, as always, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. All right, so I'm starting us off, and I know we talk about the Song of Songs a lot, but this one's a really helpful one for singles, so please uh, listen in and send us your feedback and what you think, um, and I hope we it is thought-provoking for you. For my uh, book today, I'm not actually going to do a book. I'm just going to kind of talk about some of the projects and things I'm working on. First, I want to mention I am teaching a module in two weeks on the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a bachelor's degree, you could audit the class or take it for credit. Whoa, 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 I thought that class was gone. No, it's an English class now, not Hebrew. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I'm having to redo the whole thing. It's a pain. But anyway, it should be good for you. And since you don't know Hebrew, likely, um, you would benefit from the class. I think I know of a couple of people that are auditing, and there's like four or five in, uh, enrolled. So it should be a good time. You can join it via Zoom. So if you live several states away, then uh, you could still log in and join it that way or better yet just come in person and have a good time of fellowship with us 7 30 to 12 30 monday through friday uh april 4th to april 8th okay so i promoted my class um <clears throat> now what have i been working on i've been working on my book proposal i've decided i'm going to at least submit a proposal uh for my song of songs for singles book my wife and i our song of songs for singles book kind of interesting i was placing a bunch of orders uh today for the bookstore and I was looking at new titles that were released by Broderman and Holman. Uh, there's uh, Guys Don't Write, or Guys Don't Write Popular, or Publishers Don't Publish Guys Writing at the Popular Level. They're all written by women, like all of the books I was noticing. I was like, this is kind of interesting. Everything's written by women. Ladies are readers, and they're the ones that do most of the reading. Uh, guys, I want to just encourage you to read seriously okay like you need to read the reason the women's topics section is so huge in the bookstore is because the women read and the women buy guys section is really small so read and think uh and um and use that mind so the one thing uh that i've been working on is that second thing i've been working on is i'm trying to put together a proposal for uh, a couple of academic conferences coming up and so i've been doing some reading on genesis three sixteen. Uh, in Genesis 3.16, you have the desire, the desire of the woman, um, and the man shall rule over her. There's that s section of the verse, that desire. What is that desire? I've been reading through some articles associated with it. Uh, I talked about it a little bit, I think, on our Books and Business last week, and um, I've been formulating a proposal on what my view is on uh, Genesis 3.16 and that desire. So the relationship between man and woman changed after humanity sinned in the Garden of Eden. What is the nature of that change? And I think Genesis 3.16 illustrates it, or communicates it, 
And the Song of Songs, I think, helps us to understand the difference between uh, the genders. So I'm going to be uh, working on uh, writing on that. And then the final thing I've been working on is our Song of Songs for Singles Bible Study. The study guide, I'm rewriting it. And I am making changes to the beauty section and to the um, section in Song 6. So I've been doing a lot of that kind of stuff. I haven't been doing a lot of reading. That's where I'm at. There's my books in business. I have also not been doing a lot of reading. You're horrendous. I, well, I have been doing reading, but a different kind of reading. Because I'm also working on a project, a paper for the uh, Doctor of Ministry program. And uh, I'll get to that in a second. I do just want to go back. I want to re-promo Ecclesiastes class. Yeah. I took it for credit once, sat in through it a second time, and I'm tempted to do it a third time. <laughs> but Charlie could probably about teach the class now. <laughs> so that was the first sermon series I did as a pastor. Yeah. I, I started pastoring in 2015, mm -hmm. and that I think it was either that spring or I think it was the spring before I started we had Hebrew exegesis of Ecclesiastes, and uh, it was just so eye-opening to me mm -hmm. in language study, but then also just wisdom, fearing the Lord, you know, mm -hmm. how that is the catalyst to so many other things. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, anyone over at Harvest in Williamsburg hearing this, like, now you know why we went through Ecclesiastes mm -hmm. uh, that fall. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would just highly recommend that. It, it, it's, a, it's a great class. Um, so... Uh, what I've been working on is uh, a paper on the Septuagint, and uh, the Septuagint studies are really complex. It's a very wide field. So what is the Septuagint? Uh, the, the, the name Septuagint, you maybe have heard before. You're not sure what it is. Septuagint is a shortened version of the, the 70 translators, more or less. So it's like it's hinting at the, the number of people that translated a document, which probably wasn't actually 70, but uh, this is a Greek translation of the Old Testament from somewhere in the second century BC-ish. Uh, we're not exactly 100% sure, but it's probably in that time frame and in Alexandria, Egypt, where a lot of Jews, because of the dis uh, dispersion, uh, so 586, the fall of Jerusalem with Babylon, uh, there's a lot of Jews that are not in Israel. They're in other places, and a lot of them are in Alexandria. So to facilitate the worship of these Jews, and uh, within the Hellenistic Greek culture of Alexandria, they create a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, which is now the, the, that body of text is known as the Septuagint. Uh, and so uh, that's what I've been studying. I've been reading a lot of things about the Septuagint. And specifically, I've been studying, there are some people who think that the Septuagint, so the translators translating Hebrew into Greek in the second century BC, some people think that that is an inspired document. Let's play a game. Who said this? Now, Andy already knows who said this. I can be quiet if you want. So, Tim, who said this? Oh, boy. <clears throat> For the Septuagint translators are justly believed to have received the spirit of prophecy so that if they made any alterations under his authority, his being God, spirit, and did not adhere to a strict translation, we could not doubt that this was divinely dictated. 
So the translators of the Septuagint, where they differ from the Hebrew Bible, Mm -hmm. which there are differences, by the way, it was dictated by the Spirit of God. Right. So the the Septuagint is is inspired like God breathed out the Septuagint through the translators. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like some... Ruckman or some KJV only guy. He's very famous, very famous theologian. He's he's really been reading that book and he doesn't know it. I don't know what one. What is it? The City of God. Oh, by Augustine. Yeah, I'm reading that right now. (laughs) It is. Mm -hmm. I was like, you're gonna get this. So, in case you were wondering what Augustine's view of the Septuagint is, like he thinks that that I think he put a very high authority on, and and that makes sense because he's four senses of meaning. Not what is there is the only meaning. There's yeah. deeper meaning. It's the quadrant. And so you could just see him like running crazy with extra material. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the the purpose of my paper was to kind of refute that idea, like that it is not an inspired text in the sense that it's not, it shouldn't be held to the same quality as like quotes, air quotes, the original manuscript of the Hebrew for the Old Testament. And there's a couple of reasons why. And uh, so if you want to, Want more on the Septuagint? You just come on over to my office. I've got like thirty books right now and articles. You just go crazy. I've got like a little cave where I've been writing my paper uh, that is due tonight at midnight. And if Mr. Cobelia, Doctor Cobelia, is listening to this, he's my favorite professor. <laughs> so that's that's what I've been working on for uh, books and business. So this week I am going to rank or rate uh, the Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. I am very close to being done, but I'm enough where I can rank it or rate it. I really like this book and I remember reading it a while ago. It's been good to be refreshed on it. It's not, um, it's not a, a challenging book to read except that it's more of like a convicting book. Like you, I, I, you don't go, you can blow through it really fast on one and a half times speed, but what he's talking about, he's, he's using the Bible well in your soul. And so it's one of those books where it would be good to read slowly if you can, there are theological quibbles I would have with it where his position and my position, but on the whole, I really liked the book. So I'm going to give it a seven. I would strongly recommend you read it. I know it's, it's like more of a, it's a thinky book, but like a renew the mind thinky book, like your soul thinky book. This is not going to make you an intellectual giant or something, but he's going to press you to think about what's going on in your soul in some good ways. I'll give you a quote that I thought was a nice little, it's the very last chapter uh, the title of the chapter 16 is Holiness in an Unholy World. So he 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 really covers the the perspective, the I'm sorry, he covers the whole topic of holiness well. And then he ends, how do you be holy in a world that's unholy, which I think is particularly relevant today. Um, and he has a number of ideas, but one that I really liked is his statement about the Bible. So he says this, he's talking about how the world is polluted by sin and wrong ideas, um, contrary to God ideas, temptations to leave God. And he says that the Bible is our best defense against this pollution. David said, how can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? Psalm 119.9, the Bible will cleanse our minds of the defilement of the world if we meditate on its teachings. It also will serve as a continual warning to us not to succumb to the frequent temptations to indulge our eyes and our thoughts in the immorality of the world around us. That's not like the most well perfectly worded quote ever, but I really appreciate what I'm getting from him. He after this goes on to say that he knew a guy who um, this man attended a, a secular sem, uh, secular school, and it was really a bad environment. 
And the guy understood that this was going to be a challenge. And so his um, attempt to be holy was like to guard his mind. He determined to spend as much time in the word of God as he could in his study. So he tried to be studying the word of God constantly. Uh, the guy ended up going into ministry. That just reminds me of my friend, Ben Hartwig, when we were walking a path with uh, cancer in our life and he, he had walked a similar path. He was giving me advice and he said, you need the word of God, Andy. And I said, no, I know that. And he's like, no, no, no. You need it more than you think. So even if you've already had your devotions that day, you got 20 minutes or 10 minutes later, open the Bible and keep keep like immersing it. Drink it in. Soak yourself in it. Um, and that was like true. So anyways, I liked a lot of the advice. I'm not going to say it's a perfect book, but I really did like it. And if you haven't read it, I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, I, I read that because there's, there's like a a couple of books. like there's, Trilogy, yeah. Yeah, there's The Pursuit of Holiness, and then there's the... It's not uh, practice of holiness. That's the third one. The practice of holiness is the third one. I can't remember. Practice the of habits. godliness. Practice of godliness. The practice of godliness yeah. is number three. I can't remember what the second one is. Yeah, I, they're different colors. They look very similar. Yeah. They're different colors. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I remember it being I can a look very it good up. book. I was, I was having this discussion with a couple guys at lunch today about, we were talking about classical versus public education. And it's like where I think classical education, I wish I could have had it. It's like here I am at thirty, recognizing it's like the massive deficiencies and mm -hmm. the ways of thinking I had as a, as a child, and like maybe like giving myself a better shot, like reading some of these better things and like intentionally focusing on philosophical life at like an earlier age would have been so helpful. Like if if only I if I could have gotten to some conclusions, like even just like three or four years earlier. Oh yeah, we yeah. all have that. It's and just so, part of the journey. But so like th like so the point of that comment was reading Pursuit of Holiness like 10 years ago. Mm. It probably like it probably was really great, but I didn't get out of it what I should have mm. gotten out of it. Yeah. You know. His other books and so maybe you're right. It's The Pursuit of Holiness, The Practice of God Godliness and The Disciplines of Grace. Mm. Okay, that's Discipline right. of Grace. So I think maybe that's the order. Mm. So, and then he's also got trusting God, which is one of my favorites about yeah. suffering. So, before Tim gives us a preview, I did realize Andy reminded me that I didn't say like, "Hey, what's happening in Middle Earth today?" And so, uh, today is March twenty first. What's happening in Middle Earth? It's hard to pinpoint right now, but Frodo and Sam are very close to Mount Doom, and they're almost like ready to drop the ring. I think that happens. I think it's March 25th. I didn't like go down the rabbit hole of like looking at the books and, you know, essentially Googling it. But uh, <laughs> I have, I have written resources that talk about these things. So I was looking at that. It was hard to piece it together, but I think it's the 25th or the 26th where he actually, I mean, well, to be fair, he doesn't drop the ring. Um, and if you haven't figured out what happens, uh, you know, sorry, but where he's forced to give up the ring due to some, unforeseen circumstances at the end there. But so I think, so that's, that's what they're very close to Mount Doom on March 21st. And I think the people from Minas Tirith are, are on the trail to, uh, to come to the doors of, of uh, Mordor to, to be the distraction type of a thing, you know? So anyway, uh, is that on like the 14th day of Nissan? Is that when he dropped it into the, uh, how long I think was, it's a little too allegorical, Tim. How how long was he uh, uh, unconscious or whatever? Uh, probably three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. 
Well, if it was if it was in the month of Nissan, was it a Pathfinder, a Maxima, a Sentra? Oh, it's a horrendous. <laughs> Boom. Tim, give us a quick preview <laughs> of the episode of the Adjuration Refrain. So the fourteenth of Nissan is the day that the Passover lamb was supposed to be sacrificed, and it's uh, so it's Easter. Okay, that well, that's right after. But anyway, so now on to the content for today. Um, the a lot of a lot of singles have a question, you know. I started a relationship, and how <laughs> you got to stop? <laughs> hey, I've started a relationship, and I'm a single. I'm just asking the question that you said singles ask. How, <laughs> Sorry, Tim. How Sorry. far? How far can you? How far can you physically go? That is honoring to God, and uh, so you want to be. You want to. You want to follow God's word. Uh, you have these feelings within inside you, within you. And um, you want to be together? How? What? What's like the boundary that you can go physically? Uh, and a lot of people they talk about it. You can go to dating book after dating book, and they present all of these views. There's very little Bible. Some general principles, which some are good, some are bad. Um, well, the Bible actually has a message and actually talks about it in the adjuration refrain in the Song of Songs. And so that's what we're going to work through uh, today: is this adjuration refrain. Now, in the discussion, we're going to talk about what love is. That's a big part of this uh, this uh, definition is, is what is love. You're going to have to think through that. I'm not going to give you a complete answer, but then I do talk about some specific areas, um, for example, like kissing. We'll talk about kissing and uh, does it awaken love and does that then fall under what would be prohibited material or prohibited activities uh, for singles before they are married. So that's just something for you to, uh, to whet your appetite, and I hope you find this episode helpful. Let's have a conversation about the Song of Songs. The section of the Song of Songs that we're going to talk about today is uh, called the Adjuration Refrain. The Adjuration Refrain is a refrain. A refrain would be like a chorus. It's repeated three times in the Song of Songs. In Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 7, it reads, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. In Song of Songs chapter 3 and verse 5, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Okay, so it's exactly the same. Then near the end of the Song of Songs, you have a refrain, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, why would you stir up? or awaken love until it pleases. So it's a little different in that last one, and I did translate that last one myself, uh, so it's a little different from your English Bibles. In the Hebrew, it is a rhetorical question, and I think that's the way that it should be understood, because the author is bringing his, the audience into the question and encouraging them to respond a specific way. The adjuration refrain is a very important text when it comes to singles. In fact, when I mentioned the Song of Songs, maybe you're like, oh, this isn't appropriate for me. I'm a high schooler or something. Well, I th would contend this is a very relevant text for you, even for fourth, fifth, sixth graders, okay? They need to be familiar with this adjuration refrain. In fact, uh, I taught this adjuration refrain in our kindergarten through sixth grade uh, group in our Kids for Truth program. Um, I did a four-week study on the Song of Songs and Relationships and Friends. What spurred this was me watching a Disney movie with my daughter and seeing the 
theology that Disney was teaching my daughter about love, about desire, and uh, relationships. And instead, what we have is a very contrary message in the Bible. And so I'm like, well, if Disney can teach my daughter, I think it's time for my daughter, who was four at the time, uh, to learn this message as well. So what does it mean? I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. I'm going to break this verse down for you, and then I want to have a little bit of interaction and think through uh, how this would be applied. First, the phrase, I charge you. The word here is to make an oath. This is a fascinating concept uh, because within our culture, there's a big pushback against taking an oath. Um, 20 years ago, there was, uh, there was the heyday of the purity movement, and there were a lot of youth leaders saying, you need to remain pure until marriage, okay? And having purity rings and taking oaths and all of that. Well, now, uh, 20 years later, people look back at that time period, and so many people broke their oaths, and, and they're like, well, we don't need to be taking oaths. We need to move beyond oath-taking. Well, here's a funny thing. You have the Bible, and in Song of Songs 2-7, the author is literally saying, I cause you to take an oath. I make you take an oath. And it's not like an imperative, but she's adjuring them. That's why we call it the adjuration refrain. She's adjuring them to do something, to literally take an oath. I would contend the problem with the purity movement wasn't that they were recommending oaths. I think they had the wrong oath. Uh, and I'm not going to say at the end of this thing that you need to take an oath because too often in our culture we don't appreciate oaths or think about oaths or understand what an oath really is. And plus, uh, uh, I don't know if you're really going to seriously uh, can go <laughs> where you need to go with this. Um, but anyway, and I don't have time to develop it all. But oath-taking is not the problem. There's another problem. Okay, so that's what it says. I charge you. I I, I adjure you to take an oath. I, I, I uh, make you swear, O daughters of Jerusalem. So this is a evocative, and the daughters of Jerusalem are the primary recipients. And, you know, the Song of Songs is primarily written to single women, okay? So the daughters of Jerusalem, these virgin girls who are inexperienced in love and marriage and intimacy, okay, he, she's, she's adjuring them, you know, them specifically. However... The pronoun that's written here, I charge you, the you there is a masculine pronoun. So the general charge here is for all. The primary recipient, I would, I would argue, is the single woman, but it extends even to the single men. Don't awaken love. Okay, now the next phrase. So I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field. Now what's up with these deer? I mean, so, okay, we're going to take this oath. We're going to take this oath by the deer. Well, we live in Iowa. Well, if I want to break the oath, I'll just go get my you know, shotgun and shoot Bambi. And then I can break the oath, right? Well, no, not really. Okay, so this whole gazelles in the dose, there's probably a wordplay here. And there's some disagreement among scholars. Some say it's literally the gazelles or the does. And she's having them swear by the gazelles and the does because, well, deer particularly, you know, even whitetail, it's not talking about whitetail deer, but it's similar, okay? They have a specific time of year when they mate. It's called the rut, and it's a dangerous time to drive around in Iowa during that time period because the, the bucks have uh, something on their mind, all right? 
So some would contend that that's gazelles or does because they only mate at the appropriate time, which is what the verse is kind of talking about. So that's one view. Um, they might be right. I don't think so. The word for gazelles and the word for does of the field are very similar to words uh, that would refer to the Lord, like God's name. So uh, gazelles in, in Hebrew is tzivaot, tzivaot. And the Lord is known as the Lord of tzivaot, the Lord of armies throughout the Old Testament. So I think you have actually a, a veiled reference to God in the gazelles and the does of the field. The phrase does of the field is very similar to El Shaddai. You might be familiar with God's name as God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. And does of the field sounds very similar. So I think that the oath here is actually to be sworn by okay, the Lord, uh, because that's normally what would be in this part of, a, of, a, of an oath. I charge you, okay? I make you swear by the Lord. That would be the common uh, expectation. Uh, the Lord's name is intentionally omitted because of, well, I don't, I don't want to get into that. Let's see here. How am I doing on time? Well, I can talk about it. Okay. So the Lord's name is intentionally omitted from the song. You won't find God's name in here at all. There may be a veiled reference in song eight, six or seven, okay? But um, it would be an abbreviated form of God's name if that is even a reference to his name. Throughout the ancient Near Eastern religions, uh, there was this close association of intimacy with religion. You draw close to the deity through intimacy. And I believe that God has intentionally separated intimacy from our relationship with him. What's going on in the Song of Songs is the intimacy between a husband and wife, according to the order of creation, the way that God designed it. That's the way it's supposed to be. And that's the way that it's supposed to be. Your relationship with God is not an intimate relationship like a husband and wife's intimate relationship. And God is making a strong distinction between these two things because the ancient world mixed them up. And if you read literature even today within Christian publishing, like I've seen these books come across our bookstore and Faith Bookstore, all right, this is an issue again today. People think that intimacy is a way to connect with one another and connect to God. Okay, you're not connecting to God by being intimate with your wife or your husband. Okay, that's, that's not the idea. You're serving your spouse. Okay, you should be. Um, so there's this disassociation intentionally in the song from intimacy and uh, one's relationship with God. And so God's name's not in the adjuration refrain. You get gazelles and you have does of the field. All right, so I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field. Okay, here's what you're supposed to do or not do. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Now, these two verbs are both imperatives. Do not stir up. The second one is, an, is a more emphatic statement of the first. Do not stir up. I'm going to say that stronger. Don't even awaken love. And this is what the woman of the song teaches singles to not do. Don't awaken love. Now, this metaphor is like, oh, something is sleeping. Okay? It's not awake. It's literally sleeping. And what is sleeping? Love. There's a time to awaken love. Okay? The song talks about the time to awaken love. 
but there is also a time to not awaken love. And the time to not awaken love is before it pleases. So this adds the question, well, what is until it pleases? Well, until you can be intimate, okay? So until, from an Old Testament theological perspective, until you're married, do not awaken love until it pleases. So um, this metaphor, um, and there's several different views, and when I teach my Song of Songs class, I tell students, hey, why don't you study this out? I present all the different, or have them read about all these different views and everything. Um, a lot of the views fall apart with this metaphor, okay? Something is literally sleeping, like it's it's zonked out. And this should be the four-year-old, the five-year-old, the third grader, the fifth grader, okay? The seventh grader, the ninth grader, okay? The eleventh grader, the twelfth grader. Okay, do you see how this passage applies to you? It is not time for love to please. So guess what love should be doing? It should sleep. You don't even awaken it. Now, there's several reasons given why you don't awaken love, and particularly in chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 8, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. I was talking to one man, uh, my, um, a professor, and he said, you know, singles, a lot of times, they don't realize the real issue isn't getting into a relationship, it's getting out of one. And if they're in a relationship that they need to get out of, they don't know how to do it, especially if they've awakened love. And, and why is that? Because what is love? It's this, it's this strength, this thing that's supposed to be permanent. Think about death, okay? It's over. And what is love? Love is, is permanent. It's supposed to be, okay? So when you enter into some kind of a relationship and you awaken love, and then you, you break up, like you have to break up or somebody, you know, you've awakened something and now you're having to, to, uh, uh, to shut something off that's supposed to be permanent. Look at the other illustrations here of love in uh, chapter 8 and verse 6. As a seal upon your arm, notice that covenantal terminology, set me as a seal upon your arm, okay? Something that's permanent. There's this oath. Hey, maybe it's time for love to be pleased because there's been an oath. Hmm, okay? Set me as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave, okay? Breaking up is a very vicious, can be a very vicious experience, particularly if you've never awakened love or if you've awakened it for the first time for, with somebody, and you're having to break up, it sucks, okay? And, and that's because you're doing something that the order of creation never designed to be done. Uh, its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame, okay? You have this flame of fire, and this vehement flame is uh, the one, um, some would say, the, an allusion to the Lord, the flame of the Lord. And that's what love is, the way that it's supposed to be, according to the order of creation. It's this fire that's never supposed to be extinguished. Then look in, in chapter 8, verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods, the rivers, drown it out. I want to just illustrate this figure of speech that, that Solomon teaches about love. Okay, Imagine a river, and this river is like, like blazing down. I mean, it's a river. And in the middle of a river is this fire. And the fire is so powerful 
that the water hits it and it just evaporates because it's that powerful of a fire. Guess what that's talking about? That's love. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's permanent. It doesn't die. It's, it, it endures all things. This is the way it's supposed to be. So now coming back to song 8-4 and where you have the change in the adjuration refrain, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, why would you stir up? Why would you awaken love until it pleases? So I've read a lot of books about um, love, and uh, every dating book has to have a section like how far is too far. I'm working on my own book, and I have a section, how far is too far, okay? You realize, you know, the purity movement's problem was, hey, they said, you shouldn't be intimate before marriage. Well, okay, uh, that's not what the Bible says. Did you notice that? It doesn't say don't be intimate before marriage. It says don't awaken love before marriage. Now, I'm going to open this up to you guys in a little bit here, but um, for, you know, what does it mean to have a crush? What does it mean to fall in love, okay? And I think we sh- it would be helpful for our listeners to think through what is the real uh, exhortation here from Song 2, 7, 3, 5, and 8, 4, all right? Um, but before we, before we go there, oh, I lost it. Why would you stir up? Why would you awaken love? So what is the author doing when they, the author, when Solomon says these questions? He's encouraging you to to realize and to experience and to see the absurdity of why you would awaken this desire uh, before an appropriate time. Now, so if you are, maybe you're even a parent and you have a four, five, six-year-old, okay? Guess what? You know, we already talked to our kids and we talked to them when they were four, five, and six. But guess what? There's no dating. There's no relationships. There's no, none of that. What do we want to do? We want to encourage you to do what the Song of Songs teaches, to not awaken love. Well, does dating do that, particularly for middle school or high schoolers? And so that's just an application that's a little bit. Now, I want to throw this out here. And a lot of times I tell students, so what is love? What does she mean by don't awaken love? And maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, So what do you guys think about all of this? I think that when you're asking, I don't know, I mean, there's a lot of places to go. Actually, it's interesting. We talked about the many waters can't quench what love is supposed to be. I think you're right. It's it's demonstrating the strength of this thing. And it made me think of those oil platforms in like Saudi Arabia during the desert, desert war in the 90s where they catch fire and it's so hot and you can spray water on that thing all day, but it's not, you can't put it out. And there was a place in Russia where that happened. And the way they finally got it stopped is they put a bomb right by it and blew the bomb up and it sucked all the oxygen out of the area and it was made the fire stop. So you, they literally had to bomb it. And so it was interesting because now I'm sure Solomon didn't have those ideas in his head, but I think it's a good warning to think like that. that you're messing, you're playing, you're legitimately playing with fire. And that's maybe a good way to say it. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a helpful thought that I never had when I was young. Yeah. I didn't think about it like that. I agree. <laughs> okay. Good, good impact. I would say this. I will say, when it comes to the little children, so I was in your, I'm in your church, okay? And when, so listener, we know Tim's working on this book on song. He's taught this in Sunday school. Like, this is Tim's thing. 
And so, but never in my wildest dreams did I think I would show up at Kids for Truth one night. And Tim's going to say, we're going to go to the Song of Solomon tonight for the lesson time. And I thought, what is going to happen? But it was really helpful because he took the Disney model, lovey love, and you very clearly explained why that shouldn't happen at this age. And I think, so we have a, we have in our own family, we never joke about that stuff ever. So when one parent sees another parent's kids playing together and they're little and the parent says, oh man, it looks like my kid's got a crush on yours. I will never utter those words and I don't want to ever encourage that. And I was always uncomfortable with it because I just don't think that's appropriate. But what you've done is I think you've given me biblical reason to say, I'm not going to encourage that. So I appreciate this thought. I, thought, I, I think it's very helpful and it's absent in our culture, thanks to Disney. So... Um... What I'd like to talk about, at least with the younger kids, is that, you know what, we have friends. And even with high school children, you have friends. You have multiple friends. You do things together. It's a, a corporate thing uh, at church. And so there's no singling out with exclusive relationships because that's, that's the model where love can be awakened. Now, the application—oh, go ahead. You have something? When you're done, I have another thought. Well, I'm going in a new direction. Well— so one more thing that I, I that might be worth bringing up. So you had mentioned earlier that like the name of God is not mentioned in the book at all. There might be one veiled hint and that that seems to be on purpose because in Judeo Hebrew, if you know, Hebrew, they were not wanting God to be connected to sex at all. Whereas you look at all the Canaanite religions and there's all that like intimacy. And so that's interesting then. So there's, there's sort of a mystic Christian experience today where people talk about God romancing them. Like God does this nice thing for me. Oh, he was really romancing me that day. And then you have like the CCM or the Christian artists who talk about God in such a way where it's kind of romantic overtones. Would you then say that this is a, maybe a reason to be suspicious of talking about God like that? Yes. So I've talked about this in my classes and, um, people like to use Oh, well, you know, it says in the Bible that you need to know God. You need to know the Lord, okay? Well, the same verb for know is also how Adam knew his wife. Yada, right? yada, yada. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, the Hebrew word is yada, all right? Um, and I think that is an unhelpful analogy, and I think it's a, a, a word, word study fallacy. It's a complete totality transfer fallacy, okay? You're taking the complete co concept of yada and applying it in ways that it's never intended to be. In fact, I would contend, according to the Song of Songs, it's, uh, it's teaching something contrary that God doesn't even want people to associate with him. Okay, so to know God is to know him differently than the way you would know, like uh, a husband knows his wife or a wife knows her husband. Okay, that's very helpful. Now, um, part of the nuts and bolts, like thinking through how does this actually work out itself out in real life? Well, do not stir up nor awaken love. What is love? How do we define love? And I often don't really give students a, a clear explanation of this. I tell them they need to study it out. They have to go after it just because I don't think that they really are, uh, they're usually not ready for it <laughs> or, or uh, they're going to need to see it in the scriptures for themselves. But I would encourage you to study out a biblical theology of emotion, affection, passion, and love. And when I say love, everybody just goes to 1 Corinthians 13, okay? And do we understand? 1 Corinthians 13 is a different kind of love than what we're talking about in the Song of Songs, all right? 
you know, I, I love my daughter, but I loves my wife. All right. Different kinds of love. All right. So yes, I should love my wife like 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. Okay. But there's a different kind of love that's being taught about in the Song of Songs. Well, I think too, I think you're in this, this applies to everybody. But as you mentioned, you kind of walk through like, oh, a third grader, oh, a fifth grader, oh, a ninth grader, you know, all of these different ages of kids. And then you have parents trying to make sure that their their children have properly ordered affections. And part of that affection is a romantic affection right. that is that is sleeping. And so I think part of this is is actually having an awareness as a parent of what is being stirred in the life of your child. Mm-hmm. And then even helping them raise their threshold of discernment so they can understand what's happening inside of them. Like as they're being led in certain ways, they're, they're feeling things, their emotions are swaying towards people or ideas. They have to be able to discern what's happening and, and keep love sleeping. Right. And so I, th- I think that's, a, that's, that's the thought that's been popping in my head is you can, you can kind of say it, but then as a parent, like, are you, are you knowledgeable? Mm-hmm. Are you communicating in a way with a child where you know what's going on? And obviously they could be not communicating with you or lying to you and think, you know, think about the, th- this is like a, an area that's just full of potential of, of a child to hide something from a parent because of an embarrassment or not wanting to get in trouble. But that, that, that level of awareness of discipleship in, into the life of a child or, or someone who's working through this, I think is important. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking through is you're, you're trying to ask someone to understand what emotions and affections are. That part of that discussion is understanding what their own affections and emotions actually are. It's like, you can hear this and like, Oh, that doesn't apply to me, but you might actually be fully affected. A F F affected, fully affected by the ideology of our culture. And you don't even know it. I think most of our Christians are. Yeah. I don't think we've even thought through. I didn't even know about the adjuration refrain until like ten years ago, much less when I was a high schooler. And on that note, there are things that awaken love that aren't that, that is not yes. spending time one on one with that other person. Yep. That's correct. Music, TV shows, yep. movies. You can stoke those. Like what? Mm-hmm. What are some of those mediums doing to your affections or your children's affections? Correct? Exactly. Yep. I mean, we, we've thrown Disney under the proverbial bus already in this podcast, but like, what is that doing? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's unintentional. Uh, right. It's our culture's perception of what love is. Yeah. So what's God's perception of what love is? Should you fall in love? Okay. Should you have a crush? Is there a time to fall in love or to have a crush? Well, definitely until it pleases. But how is this oh man, I just have a feeling for this person and I'm thinking of marrying that person or whatever. You know, how do we process through these desires? Okay, and that's where, you know, well, do not stir up nor awaken love. Well, you think through that, all right? That's where I just let people, you you, you think through that, okay? <laughs> now, um, I want to talk about one other section just because I, I want to uh, just give you a little bit more uh, physical uh, guidance. Okay. So in Song of Songs, chapter one and verse two, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. We have a clear reference to kissing in song one, two. 
And the woman wants to be kissed here in song one, two, because she enjoys the affections of her husband. And then in verse four, draw me away, uh, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Okay, the chambers, this is a passage that talks about kissing that leads to a specific location where the couple, where love pleases, shall we say. In song eight, one, oh, that you were like my brother. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. If I would not be despised, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. Okay, so here we have kissing again, and the woman again desires the affections, the kisses of her lover. And then after the kisses, they're going to be going to a specific location, a location of love. We have this uh, kissing uh, throughout the Song of Songs. In Song 7-9, the roof of your mouth is like the best wine. So here we have a reference to what is commonly called making out in uh, Western culture. And the roof of the mouth would be the inside of the mouth. And what is the reference? That it's intoxicating. And I would just encourage you to think through, especially even within Christian culture, there's this perception that kissing is like the line. And I've read a lot of dating books, and they talk about kissing being the line. Well, does kissing awaken love? What does the Song of Songs teach? What do these passages teach about kissing? In Song of Songs chapter 4 and verse 10, How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? How much better than wine is your love, and the scent of your perfumes than all spices? Your lips, O my spouse, drip as a honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Well, how do you figure out that that's what it tastes in there? Okay? So we have another clear reference to kissing, to making out. And it's always in the process, uh, or in the, in the section of love. And I want to just end with a quote from a book on intimacy, written to singles to give them guidance concerning how far is too far. I realize some readers will, this is the quote, I realize that some readers will think that kissing ought to be off limits until you've said I do. If you're in the no kissing camp, don't worry. I won't try to talk you out of it. I know people who've held to the no kissing rule and through knowing them, I've moved from thinking they're nuts to having the utmost respect for them. So this author is considered it to be okay to kiss and they've kind of been moving their view. I never joined their cause, she says. Well, it's unfortunate, but let's keep reading. What's compelling about the no kissing rule is its clarity. It is very, very clear. It admits no gray area. If you're not even smooching, you're unlikely to find yourself sliding down a slippery slope to sex itself. There is something decidedly unnatural, pay attention to this part, about sparking desire and then arresting it night after night. To refrain from kissing is to avoid not only temptation, but also the odd shocks, fits, and starts of interrupted desires. This author is completely oblivious to the adjuration refrain, but proves the point and gives some clear guidance and verifies what the song teaches, validates what the song teaches about awakening love. Kissing awakens love and your interrupting desire. That's what you have to do to stop because you're starting something that's never supposed to stop. Now, if you think this just refers to kissing, you've totally missed the point of this entire discussion. 
I've talked to people who've never had any physical affection for somebody, but they've awakened love. So think through this, said Jurashan Refrain. What does it mean to not awaken love and don't awaken love? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.